This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon, and welcome to the Sunday edition of the Best of Fight Back, more of what you want to hear from the week that was. We received more clarity on the COVID-19 vaccine rollout this past week. On Wednesday, retired General Rick Hillier, who's heading up the Ontario Vaccine Task Force, explained that people over 80 will begin receiving their vaccines the third week of March. With declining age groups to receive their vaccines and staggered rollouts through June 1st, when the vaccine will be offered to people 65 and older. But the general also revealed that the online portal and call center won't open for booking vaccination appointments until March 15th, and then only for people 80 and over. Earlier in the week, Fight Back heard from doctors who say they had received no information on what to tell patients about COVID-19 vaccinations, even though the general had told Ontario residents a few days prior to contact their doctors to get on a list or receive more information. On Wednesday, General Hillier clarified that doctors should reach out to their local public health units to see how they can assist in the vaccine rollout. Is that a reasonable role for the province's physicians? Libby Snymer asked this question of Dr. Anne Holland, a family physician with Prince Edward Medical. She was also joined by NDP health critic France Jelena to get reaction on the confused and delayed appointment process. A little bit of clarity is welcome, but the news is not good. How could it be that even a portal, that's something that Ontario knows how to do. How come it won't be available for another three weeks when in Alberta it is available now and people over 75 uh, are able to book and get their shots? So us, we won't even be able to get on the computer or get on the phone to book for another three weeks and another four weeks before people over 80 uh, become eligible. That's another month where they are prisoners in their own homes. That's really hard to listen to. Dr. Holland, it was very weird when he clarified what he wants doctors to do. What did you make of that? Family doctors, as I said, are are ready and, and willing to help. I think what's still unclear is is how we do that. Um, effectively. And, and also, I would say, uh, again, we, we heard about this information through the media. Um, it is frustrating to hear about it through the media rather than um, an, another more official or another uh, channel directly to us. Um, and so, yeah, I think there's still a lot of confusion. I'd like to bring in Ashnur Rahim, who is uh, with Wood Green Community Centre, and they run the Jack Layton Building. And your residents, uh, I think they won the lottery. They're part of a pilot project where the vaccine came to them. Tell us about yeah. it. Thank you so much, Libby. We're delighted that yesterday our residents at um, 1070 Queen at the Jack Layton Building were able to access the vaccine 
it was really through a partnership that was approved by Toronto Public Health with Michael Guerin Hospital and the East Toronto Family Practice Network. And that's where the hospital, the physicians and the community come together and really find solutions on the ground to tackle so many of the problems that you're talking about today. And we were able to provide over 200 residents and PSWs who are frontline working with these clients in congregate settings with the first vaccine. And I can tell you that the response was just overwhelming. We had um, residents who were crying because they were now hopeful that they could start to see their, their grandchildren and their families start to participate in the activities that they miss so much because they're on, they see a road forward, which is just wonderful. You know, one of the things uh, that is a general criticism about the way things happen here, and, and maybe not just in Ontario, is that we're great at pilot projects, and then they prove what they're supposed to prove, that you can do something, and they're uh, generally not scaled up. Uh, you're absolutely right. I mean, from the beginning, when when the government decided to uh, have the vaccine delivered in hospitals, our hospitals have never administered vaccine. It's always been the responsibility of the health unit. But no, <laughs> the health units were, were not connected, were not part of this, although they are the ones that have all the expertise. Now they have stepped up, and basically the hospital have said, no, we're not going to do this. This, this is not our role. This is the role of public health. And let public health that has knowledge of of different communities, of barriers to access, of um, different uh, place within their target areas where they know that it is wheelchair accessible, that's easy for people to get there, to park, to have uh, transit, etc. They are the holder of all of this knowledge, but yet they were never invited to the decision-making table. The, so uh, you're right, we pilot ideas, they work great, they give us hope, and then we do nothing with them. NDP health critic Frost Jelena, Ashnur Rahim, vice president of community care of Wood Green Community Services, which runs the Jack Layton building on Queen East, and Dr. Anne Holland, a family physician with Prince Edward Medical. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. On the same day, Fight Back brought in Brampton Mayor Patrick Brown to get his reaction about the COVID-19 vaccination program to that point and the new information on the plan to begin vaccinating Ontario residents 80 and over starting in the third week of March. Yeah, let me say, um, first of all, I've got um, confidence in uh, General Hillier. I think he's a great pick for this uh, um, logistical um, rollout. Uh, but I have to say, it is frustrating the pace of procurement in Canada. It is frustrating how long it's taking to get vaccines. And I know the provinces are doing the best with, with the vaccines that they're supplied, uh, but it really shouldn't uh, take this line this long. When you look at the vaccine rollout in the U.S. or in the U.K. or Israel or the UAE, you know, Canada um, really needs to play catch-up. Yeah, well, we're number 44 last time I looked, but 
a whole, a very large shipment of vaccines landed yesterday. We apparently have all the vaccines we were supposed to get this week. And uh, as we were saying, uh, we are way behind. I'm sorry, Alberta, Quebec and British Columbia, which are ready. Alberta, you can certainly book and you can get vaccinations if you're over 75. Quebec, you can also book and you'll be able to get your vaccination if you're over 85 next week. And here we are. Our seniors have to wait another week. Yeah. And so, you know, booking appointments, I view as a as, as, as a side issue, they haven't even done the healthcare workers yet. We don't even have enough vaccines for our healthcare workers. I got an update recently um, from Osler Health, and we still have half the hospital workers that, that, that need to be vaccinated. And so, um, you know, yes, you know, I'm, I'm frustrated how long it's taking, but at the end of the day, you need vaccine supply. The issue is supply, supply, supply. Let me give you an example, and, and, and I can speak with knowledge uh, in terms of Peel Region's apparatus. We now have seven vac- vaccination centers ready to go, seven mass vaccination centers ready to go. We can vaccinate 40,000 residents a day. Literally, if vaccines arrived, we could do that tomorrow. We could do our entire senior population in Brampton in two days if we had vaccines. But the issue isn't capacity. The issue isn't infrastructure. The issue is supply. Well, yeah, except, as I said, uh, a a large supply has landed. Other provinces have their supply. I mean, I think part of the issue is priority because other provinces have said. But no, you say a large supply has arrived. You know, you get 600,000 vaccines in a country of 37 million. Um, It's not right now. Supplies have not landed for the general public. We're still dealing with long-term care, uh, healthcare workers, first responders. And so I'm not going to give any accolades to the federal government until I actually have vaccines for the general public. And from a Peel Region perspective, I'm still waiting. And I'm tired of waiting. Right now, all the only vaccine supply we have from the government of Canada is for those in the phase one. And I want to get to phase two. You know, we, right, they're saying that phase two is those over 80, and, and we're ready to go. In terms of the plan for the rollout, uh, doing it this way where there's an online portal and uh, a call center, is that going to work for seniors in Brampton? Well, I, I think an online portal certainly won't work for everyone. And, you know, our medical officer of health, uh, Dr. Lowe, has spoken to the fact that we're going to be looking at ways to enhance that. At a regional level, um, we're going to adapt to those to, to those challenges, but once again, it's predicated on having the supply. You know, we Hall and Christian Homes in Brampton is a re- retirement home where we know there's a lot of mobility issues, and literally, we could go there tomorrow and vaccinate if we had supply. What would you like to leave us with, Mayor Brown? Vaccines, 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 vaccines. We need supply, uh, and Canada has an incredible capacity to vaccinate. We've got a great local infrastructure across the country, and as soon as Anita Anand and Prime Minister Trudeau are able to get procurement in significant numbers, not uh, dribs and drabs. You know, we're going to be able to do wonders in protecting our, our population, but we need supply. That's what it's about. 
Brampton Mayor Patrick Brown in conversation with Libby Snymer on Wednesday. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Coming up after the break, we go to a leading geriatrician for his take on why the 80-plus group is not being vaccinated sooner. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. There are many concerns and questions when it comes to older seniors who may not have access to the Internet. Once the COVID vaccination online portal opens for people 80 and over on March 15th. In addition, seniors advocates and gerontologists are critical of the time frame because it puts older adults at risk longer if the province experiences a third wave of COVID-19 and its variants. And the model of mass vaccination sites will make it challenging for many older people to get to these locations to get their vaccines. Leading geriatrician Dr. Samir Sinha joined Libby Snymer on Thursday to discuss these issues. It's just really clear and apparent that uh, the the general's kind of announcement was saying that, look, you know, we've made our recommendations and this task force has made their recommendations to cabinet. So we have a bunch of cabinet ministers um, who are actually saying, yeah, we want to of course, vaccinate older people, you know, but we're also going to try and vaccinate a bunch of other people who our National Advisory Committee on Immunization have said should not be prioritized before those who are at the highest risk. And the science, I'm, I'm, uh, this is not an opinion, this is actually the scientific evidence, says that if you look at any factors that are related to your risk of getting sick and dying from COVID-19, age is the absolute number one greatest factor. And frankly, we're actually really lucky that we actually have something that is so clear and definitive in the evidence to really point us to something that's actually really easy to do. Because literally, I don't have to ask you a whole bunch of questions. I just need to say, how old are you? Most people know that. Most people have evidence of that on a driver's license or on, a, on an OHIP card or whatever the case is. And then all of a sudden, that's all we need to do. And that's why Israel followed that approach rapidly. The UK has vaccinated pretty much all of its older citizens now as well, because it literally is. We have databases. We actually could just go through and say, let's start with the oldest to work down in five-year increments, and there we go. So what troubles me most is that because people say, well, wait a minute, the government is saying that they're going to be vaccinating older people, um, but it's going to take until, my goodness, July, if you're over 60, you're going to start hearing about your opportunity in July. Yet we will have enough vaccines in Ontario before the end of April to offer all 3.5 million um, older Ontarians, 16 older, a first dose of the vaccination. So this is not an impossible thing to do. And that's why I commend Dr. Henry. I commend Dr. Hinshaw. I commend Dr. Rusin. I commend all the other medical officers of health and all the premiers across the other provinces who are following the National Advisory Committee on Immunization Guidelines and making sure that they vaccinate their older citizens first before they get to essential workers. Why? It's not about discrimination. It's about science that's showing that 
even just by being older than 60, your risk of dying is that much greater than, say, even someone like me as a 44-year-old healthy frontline worker working with people who have COVID. Is this cast in stone? Is there anything that can be done? You can change it at a heartbeat. And frankly, I was thrilled um, the other week when Ontario actually reversed its decision and moved its 80-year-old-plus population into phase one from phase two. So that's an example where the Ontario government can actually fix its mistakes. So anything is possible, and we can always fix our mistakes. And is there uh, anyone that they are actually listening to? Is, is, is there an effort underway to get them to fix their mistake? Well, I think, you know, usually, uh, apparently, like now, it's my Twitter feed and that of my other colleagues that seems to at least get some attention from folks like you to amplify messages that remind them that 80% of our older people vote, and that's 3.5 million people. We keep and reminding Frank, them from CARP and Zoomer. And, was... and you know what? And, you know, frankly, sometimes for some of those people around the cabinet table, I mean, someone sent an email to me criticizing, saying, how dare you try and bring up a political angle? But frankly... Um, I'm going to use every single tool in my toolbox to remind people that older people are not invisible, older people matter, and that their lives should be prioritized, and they shouldn't be taken for granted. Because one day, if we all play our cards right, we will be Zoomers or older people. And frankly, we wouldn't want to be treated the way we're treating them right now. Dr. Samir Sinha, Director of Geriatrics at Mount Sinai and the University Health Network Hospitals in Toronto. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Elderly people are not the only especially vulnerable group when it comes to COVID-19. We've known for a while that diabetes, especially type 2 diabetes, is a major risk factor for severe disease. And earlier this month, there was a disturbing finding from a study out of France. Researchers say a fifth of patients hospitalized with COVID-19 and who have diabetes will die within a month of admission. To talk about this issue, Libby was joined by Dr. Laura Rosella, a professor of epidemiology at the Dalalana School of Public Health at the University of Toronto. We do know that individuals with diabetes are at higher risk for having complications from infections generally. So that's something that's known with diabetes, but the relationship with COVID-19 is very strong, I think stronger than uh, initially thought. And now that we're starting to accumulate the data, we're seeing um, these high numbers and, and pretty pretty scary outcomes for patients living with diabetes. And do you have a theory about why that is beyond the propensity for infections? Yeah, so there's been this has been an active area of science uh, right now because uh, the the increase is, is quite alarming. And, and so we don't know for sure, uh, not one thing in particular, but some hypotheses have been raised, some things have been tested. So one, one may be the direct impact of the virus itself. So uh, there's some initial evidence, mostly from laboratory, saying that the, the virus actually impacts the pancreas where insulin is produced, making it work. Um, and there's an indirect effect on insulin production. There's also uh, a hypothesis around inflammation and the actual acute illness. So when individuals are sick with COVID-19, they're very ill and it actually, you know, wreaks quite a bit of havoc on the body for, uh, you know, in simplistic terms. And as a result, that inflammation raises blood sugar and makes all um, the, the complications of diabetes uh, more pronounced. And then the last thing, maybe actually the treatments. 
So uh, steroids, for example, are a common treatment for uh, COVID-19 effective, but it could uh, raise blood sugar levels even higher, which makes the complications of diabetes uh, more prevalent. So these are some of the hypotheses all being confirmed right now, and probably it's a mixture of many playing a role. The other thing that's considered a risk factor is obesity. And in this particular study, I, I saw a correlation with a body mass index of, of uh, 28 and a half, I think. Why would that be? Yeah. So one of the, again, hypotheses does has to have to do with inflammation and, and the acute illness. So when you have a higher body mass, and even if you don't like that particular measure, essentially more weight um, than your body can handle in the effective way, then it makes the, it makes it challenging for your body to do all of its normal functions. And when those functions are being attacked, it's thought to exacerbate the results. What is the bottom line on this, or is there any special advice for people with diabetes? So the first and most important advice would be uh, prevention, really taking care uh, to take all measures possible to avoid COVID-19 exposure wherever possible. Obviously, that's the advice for everybody. Everybody knows that. Um, But taking those extra precautions because we know that if infected, the outcomes are more serious. And the one thing in the study, although it is an observational study and, you know, we we can't say for certain until we start seeing some more corroborating evidence, is it does does look like that individuals with diabetes um, who were on metformin, who had lower BMI, as you mentioned, and less complications, so where their diabetes was possibly better controlled, seem to have better outcomes. So if someone is living with diabetes, all of the advice from your doctor on the on the treatment to make sure that your diabetes is well controlled looks like it can be helpful in preventing some COVID complications as well as among, among diabetes uh, cases. What would you like to leave people with? There are lots of factors that contribute to diabetes. It's not just individual choice. Most people want to live the healthiest life uh, possible and that there's a lot of support in the community and and in our cities that are needed to make that happen and just taking advantage of that and understanding that it's not you know it's not a bad decision that anyone made it's a function of many complex factors and those need to be addressed Dr. Laura Rosella, Professor of Epidemiology at the Dalla Lana School of Public Health at the University of Toronto. I'm Jane Brown, and you're listening to the best of Fight Back. Coming up, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. Here are some of the week's best calls. Maureen in Mississauga phoned with a question about her aging mother and the additional challenges during the pandemic. Just wish uh, we could get this whole thing underway, but I have a really, really interesting little problem. Um, I, my mother is 90 years old. Uh, she suffers from Parkinson, but she lives at home. I have uh, qualified, licensed PSWs that I have hired privately 
We, it's a 24-7 operation. They come in. They take care of my mother. I'm part of the team. I have been trying for weeks and weeks to find out how to make the government understand that we exist, because I feel that we have fallen through the cracks. I didn't hire these people through an agency. I don't use the government uh, PSWs. These are privately hired. So how do I get us vaccinated? How do I get my workers vaccinated? Hmm. And this, I, oh my goodness, I have called people, you have no idea, uh, and they just keep sending me one to the other, to the other, to the other. Finally, there was some agreeance that, yes, we never thought about you people. Uh, yeah, okay, well, you know what, just keep looking at our website and uh, we'll give you more information. Well, isn't that helpful? No, I need to know now who to contact to get this ball rolling so that I can get these people vaccinated. Jerry in Whitby is frustrated by the lack of information around COVID-19 vaccines. I'm very much confused. I tried to get some information on the vaccine from St. Mike's Hospital and also at Michael Guerin, because I'm a truck driver. I go between Ontario and Quebec quite frequently. So I'm 77. So that puts me as an essential and as a senior. And I keep, it's like I'm on a labyrinth. Every time I turn on a path, I'm hitting a dead end. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. In fact, there were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week comes from Barbara in Newcastle, who phoned with her take on for-profit owners of long-term care who've been witness to thousands of deaths during the pandemic. This is so frustrating because you cannot throw money at a corporation. These guys make billions of dollars. Why is taxpayers going in and spending our taxpayers' money when these are criminals? And the police should be involved, human rights should be involved, and the government is just throwing pittance at people while people are dying of neglect and it has nothing to do with COVID. That does it for this week's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby and call our Fight Back voicemail anytime at 416-367-9636. 367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join us again next weekend when we'll round up the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.